Hello and welcome to the podcast, Enemies from War to Wisdom. This podcast is dedicated to unpacking the often confusing and painful issues that surround human hostilities. In this way, we hope to open the door to greater curiosity, dialogue, and discovery between people who are poised to be enemies, those who are opposed to each other or have been hurt and rejected by each other. Our goal is to help us all enter into the wisdom that prevents chronic conflict from leading to alienation, fragmentation, or war. I'm your host, Eleanor Johnson, a videographer and artist who is the director of Emma Troop, an experimental theater laboratory in New York City. And I'm here with co-host Polly Young-Eisendratt. She is an author, speaker, psychologist, and psychoanalyst. While we come to these topics from each our own perspectives, Polly and I bring insight from our own lifelong dedicated practices of Buddhism that inform everything we do and think. We hope you find our conversation useful and that you will join us again and again. And now the podcast. Welcome to our podcast today, and this is the second part of our dialogue on emotions and feelings. And today, Polly's going to talk to us about self-conscious emotions, and then we're also going to talk about emotional memory. So here's Polly. Thanks, Eleanor. We were talking last time about these two classes of human emotions, and the first called the primary emotions, and those primary emotions are present from birth, even from before birth in utero. And those emotions organize us in a very primary way to interact with others because we depend on others from the you know get-go, from the very beginning. We're inside of somebody else, and then we depend on that person to do all of the thinking for us for quite a long time. The secondary emotions or the self-conscious emotions are those emotions that develop naturally at around 18 months to 24 months. They start to come on board in the human infant. And those are the emotions that allow us to compare ourselves to others, to become conscious of ourselves, and eventually to decenter from our own thoughts and feelings. That is, we can take a step back and reflect on our thoughts and feelings. And then we can even do something that's called inductive reasoning or deductive reasoning. All of these rational processes that would allow us to, for example, go to the moon because we can reason about something that is really very new and outside of our experience. All of those processes arise from the development of the self-conscious emotions. So the self-conscious emotions are kind of remarkably human. There is not another animal that has them developed in the way we do. There are other animals, for example, elephants, apparently, giraffes, dolphins. They've been tested for some of these self-conscious emotions, and they have some of them. But as I said in an earlier program, the dolphins don't have theories about themselves. And the dolphins actually cannot decenter mid-sentence, mid-action like we can. So Homo sapiens can do this thing of decentering, which allows them to think and talk about things that are not present, and other animals cannot do that, even animals that have language and culture and symbols and so on, which we know to be the case for a number of animals. These secondary emotions are very, very important to being human, and they are what set us aside from many other animals, 
also perhaps give us this freedom that we call subjective freedom to change, to look at ourselves, to see what we're doing and to see the consequences, to set intentions, to do things that are not happening at the present moment. On the other hand, and on the other side of the human heart, they also predispose us to a tremendous amount of competition and comparison and destructive emotions, particularly towards our own species, particularly towards other Homo sapiens. As I mentioned them last time, the self-conscious emotions include jealousy and envy and shame and guilt and self-pity and self-consciousness itself, embarrassment, self-awareness, and pride. And so these emotions tend to motivate us overall to see where we are in relation to the group. We're always kind of comparing to see, are we getting our due? Has someone else got more than we have? If someone has more, could we get more? Or does that person have more for unfair reasons? And then in which case we feel this envy and we want to put down the other person. These emotions also cause us to humiliate others, to shame others, so that we expose their weaknesses to the group. And of course, in a very sort of, let's say, uncivilized setting where there would be no sort of protective laws, if an individual were exposed to the group in terms of that individual's weaknesses, that individual might die, I mean, might be killed by the group. And so if your weaknesses are exposed and you are humiliated in front of the group, your life could be threatened. And so, as we've said many times, humiliation then evokes rage. Uh, and so there's a strong response in relation especially to this desire to scorn or humiliate another. There's a response uh, of the other and then within the self that tends to be also the motivation to subdue or subjugate another uh, for a variety of reasons. It could be envy, it could be hatred, it could be tribal, whatever. So the self-conscious emotions I think I'll go through them even and define them a little bit because there are two that are very relevant to the way people relate to each other and especially in conflict and especially in the political arena right now. One of the really important self-conscious emotions, envy, and a lot of people do not understand envy. I'm going to talk about it in the way that psychoanalysts understand it. I think it's worth understanding it in that regard because it gives us insight into things that happen between people that we otherwise might think of as being extremely irrational when actually they're motivated by emotion and emotion does have its own reason. So envy is the hatred of someone who has more than you have and you don't feel you could possess that. In other words, you perceive the other person as having resources that you could never have. So if you perceive another person as having wealth that you could never have, privilege that you could never have, intelligence, beauty, anything associated with power that you could not have yourself, you can't go after it, it's not available to you, then there is a way that you could come to hate that other for the other's resources, simply because the other possesses these resources. And that hatred 
tends to take the form of wanting to expose the other's weaknesses, that is humiliation, or the form of just putting down the other, just that sort of sour grapes feeling like, oh, I don't need that, you know, I wouldn't want to take that vacation, or I wouldn't want that kind of car, that's silly to have all that education, who would want to own that kind of house, that McMansion, and so on. All of these kinds of downputting of somebody else's resources and someone else's privileges, those are motivated by envy. And so Melanie Klein, who was a psychoanalyst, a German woman who was a Freudian and moved to London and kind of developed her own theories, uh, particularly about the human infant and its emotions, she emphasizes envy, especially because when people feel envy, this form of hatred, they are not capable of feeling gratitude at the same time. So for example, if you are employed by, say, a wealthy person, a person who has a lot of privilege, and that person treats you very well, you may not feel any kind of gratitude because you may feel mostly the hatred of their privilege. And she shows how hatred of privilege or hatred of the resources someone has prevents you from feeling grateful for what they do for you because you think, oh, they could do more. I mean, with all of this, they could always do more. So instead of feeling, oh, I'm so happy that this person gave me this wonderful thing or provides these wonderful things, you feel, well, they have plenty of money. And so this is nothing. This just rolls off of them. And so why should I feel grateful for it? So that whole dynamic of envy and then the way it blocks gratitude functions very strongly in social groups and between groups to motivate people who experience themselves as having less and in fact do have less, but also particularly those who experience themselves, because we'll find out that a lot of this has to do with actually the way you feel about yourself, experience themselves in this way, they will want to put down those who have more, expose their weaknesses, and act as though even resources that are given to them are really incidental and really aren't worth that much. Envy and gratitude, two very important emotions to keep in mind, but envy being the self-conscious emotion there. You know, Polly, I thought that was really profoundly insightful when you look at what's happening right now with the kind of divisiveness, the separation, all this out-projecting that's going on within the political public arena, and the inability to find any form of appreciation for the other. I think this is very, very helpful to think about and reflect on. Thank you so much for that. That was really, really clear. Thanks, Eleanor. I very much believe that having clarity about envy opens a door to gratitude. Because if you can recognize that you put down the billionaire because of your envy, not because of some reality, reality is much more complex than your own emotions. <laughs> so when you put down someone who simply has more, it's out of envy, and then perhaps you feel no gratitude for actually what you do have as a result. So that's one rich area of human emotion that's connected to the self-conscious emotion of envy. The, the sort of sibling of envy is jealousy. 
And again, this is the language of Melanie Klein, and not everyone defines the words this way, but I find it useful. So she says, envy is the hatred of another's resources. Jealousy is coveting another's resources in a competitive way. In other words, you're going to go after the other person's resources. So you see, oh, this person has, you know, a wonderful property. And so let me buy a property that's like that, or let me maybe even try to buy that property. Jealousy in this framework is not as destructive as envy because in jealousy, we begin to compete and we actually compare ourselves to others, but in a way that motivates us to do something, not just to destroy or cut down the other, but to actually, you know, take up a cause or go after something that we want. So in the Buddha family of emotions, jealousy is one of those emotions that when it's enlightened, it is actually a positive emotion. So jealousy on one hand, you know, causes you to look upon your fellow being as a competitor. You're going to run that race. You're not looking at the person maybe in a compassionate way, but more like somebody that you want to beat in the race or for the score. But on the other hand, it also motivates you to do sometimes great things. And so jealousy, self-conscious emotion, that you covet what someone else has, and then you try to compete for it, much less destructive than envy, which is a form of hatred. So those are two of the self-conscious emotions, again, in place by about the age of two for everyone, all of us, every human heart has that within it. And then the other two that are kind of siblings are guilt and shame. So shame is the experience that you are defective in some way that can't be remedied. And so you can only lie or hide or cover up when you feel that you have this kind of defect. And so in the face of humiliation or somebody else's scorn or contempt, you may lie to cover up your flaws or faults because you feel that sense of defect and you want to hide it. And so again, there's a whole rich tapestry with this when people feel ashamed and when they have been humiliated, they will tend to cover up, they will tend to hide. At the extreme, they might commit suicide because they feel that there's no way they can correct their flaws. So shame, like envy, is a very destructive emotion. It is leading towards destruction. It is not leading anywhere that's constructive. And so it's better to be able to just feel these destructive emotions and not do something with them, not put them into speech or put them into action. Because as soon as you do, it is creating a destructive outcome. And as we've said many times, all of these kinds of emotions are interactive. In other words, other people experience some kind of reaction to your shame and your envy as soon as you put it into action or words then the sibling of shame is guilt. And guilt is that experience that you've done something wrong. It's not that you're bad or defective, but you've done something that you can repair, that you can apologize for, that you can make reparation for. And so guilt has a positive side. It also can create a lot of anxiety and therefore a kind of restlessness. So guilt is not simply a positive motivator, 
but it can motivate you to actually take care of what you've done wrong. Then the other self-conscious emotions like embarrassment, self-awareness, self-consciousness itself would be those states of mind in which you begin to compare yourself to others. And often this takes the form of pulling yourself away from the present moment and looking at what you're doing in a measured or judgmental way. For example, if you're climbing a rock wall and you suddenly wonder, did I do that hold right on the wall? Actually, it will weaken your ability to climb the wall. So when you need deep concentration and you're involved in some activity, it is helpful not to be self-conscious. As soon as you put your awareness on yourself in comparison with a standard or with an ideal or with another person, you've taken your concentration off of the actual activity that you're doing. You've weakened your concentration and therefore you're not actually doing that activity as well. And again, many of us know this from our own experience. We experience that we're in the flow of some activity and then we become self-conscious and boom, we fall over. So self-consciousness itself pulls you out of the moment into a comparison. And then pride. Pride is an interesting self-conscious feeling. It's the only one of the self-conscious emotions that can be expansive, that can lead to something that's positive. But pride is comparing yourself to the group. And instead of feeling ashamed or defective, you feel superior or you feel like you're better than or better equipped than somebody else. Uh, this gives you a confidence and allows you to kind of puff up a bit and keep going even under difficulty. So pride, it can be a positive thing, especially if it's a pride in your family, a group, your tribe or whatever that gives you confidence in your identity. On the other hand, pride also can easily lead to shame, the feeling that there is still something about you that's different from others. And so in some of the experiments around pride, one of the social psychology experiments was to have what they call a plant or someone who is part of the experiment give a compliment, a kind of unearned compliment to somebody in a kind of a passing way, like, wow, that was a great job you did there, when it really wasn't that great. And then that person, the plant, walks by the individual who was complimented sometime later on the sidewalk or on the street. What was found generally, and I don't remember the percentages, but the majority of people who were complimented in a way that they didn't really earn, or sometimes even in, in a way that did make sense, they would avoid passing by the person who complimented them. In other words, they were self-conscious about receiving the compliment and they didn't want to see that person again. And so you might remember yourself when someone compliments you, often it, it feels uncomfortable. Apparently Freud actually could not take compliments and so he would stop people from complimenting him. So to actually receive a compliment does make us self-conscious. We feel a little odd about it because we stand out from the group in what feels like too big a way. Some cultures in Asia particularly, people never receive compliments because they don't want to stand out from the group. They don't want to look in a public way like they're competitive with others and wanting to stand out. So all of these self-conscious emotions cause us to compare ourselves with others. 
at their root, what they're really motivating us to do is to protect ourselves in a group situation and to try to get ahead, to try to keep away the bad stuff. And ultimately, this leads to what you call, Eleanor, out projection. It leads to this tendency to find others to be the problem, not ourselves. And so because we feel most often critical, negative, we find things that are wrong, we're agitated, and then we have these self-conscious emotions, we look around and we often find that the problem is outside of ourselves. And so either through envy, hating someone who has privilege and resource, or through jealousy, competing with someone who has privilege and resource, we say, oh, the problem is out there. Uh, Whereas really the problem is in our own emotions as they're translated into interpretations and feelings. And then if we react from that source. Now, I just want to take one step back for a moment and say, these are natural conditions. These are not bad things. Everything I've talked about is not something that's bad. It's a part of being a homo sapien. It's a part of being human. And so what do we do with all these negative emotions, all of these interpretations of unfairness and all this hatred and so on? What we have to do ultimately is to learn how to work with constraint or restraint in regard to our own selves, those interactive habits that we have with others. So before we kind of take off from this any further, I wanted to read a kind of longish quote from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whom I've been mentioning in almost every one of these podcasts. And this is from the Gulag Archipelago. And I want to read two short paragraphs, but I want to read the whole quote because actually it gets at a lot of the issues that we've been setting out. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart, and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us, it oscillates with the years. And even within years overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an ununprooted small corner of evil. Since then, I have come to understand the truth of all the religions of the world. They struggle with the evil inside a human being, inside every human being. It is impossible to expel evil from the world in its entirety, but it is possible to constrict it within each person. So I think that quote actually kind of summarizes something that I have been trying to talk about by showing some of the sort of map of the human mind, the human psyche, and to say that these basic emotions, the primary and secondary emotions, motivate all of us to have this kind of evil, aggressiveness, hatred in our own hearts. And we need to actually govern the way we use these motivations in our words and our actions 
or we will simply reproduce over and over again humiliation and rage and hatred, and that will lead to nothing good. So at root, these destructive impulses that are within ourselves are the true enemies. The enemies are not out there. And until we can, as human beings, check in with our true humanness, which is our capacity to take a step back, reflect on something before we speak, apologize for something when we do something wrong, and recognize that there are no good and bad people out there. There is good and bad within our own hearts. And at root, the only way to approach changing the world is to approach it step by step through our own actions and our own speech and to recognize that what we call our feelings are interpretations and judgments based on our emotions. So I've just kind of said a long thing about the social emotions, about the self-conscious emotions. So I'm wondering, Eleanor, what you're thinking about all this. Well, as I was listening to you, I realized also that our lack of ability to act together is more a reflection of a crisis in humanity. And when we can understand what you're telling us about our own individual natures, it just helps us to work better with the larger human issues. And I also think that when you talked about, you know, real solutions and real discoveries are found between people, not within individuals, and that's another aspect. But it just helps us to kind of form a more workable picture of just finding healthier ways to deal with these enormous conflicts that arise within us and also we see reflected outside in almost every aspect of the public arena right now. So it's just very, very helpful. Anything else you'd like to say before we end today, Polly? Well, we didn't get around to emotional memory today, but I think that's fine because we'll bring it up in another program. It's a very key aspect. So what you just said, Eleanor, where I really find it's extremely important to understand emotions and feelings is to recognize that this is who we are. This is how we are made. Nobody is free of these things. No one is pure in a way that doesn't include envy and shame and guilt. Once you see that, you start to see that we need to work together and to be a bit modest about our own opinions and to be a bit modest about what we think is wrong, you know, when, which is, yes. And so, you know, so many times people say, well, look what's going on out in the world. Look what's going on with the President of the United States. Look what's going on with, you know, various people out there. I'm outraged about it. Why can't I say how awful it is? Why can't I express this from my point of view? Of course you can, but there are big consequences. As soon as you do, something is evoked. So the question is, do you want that outcome? It's not that you're not free to do it. Of course you are. But the formula of humiliation and rage is eternal. It's like an eternal law. And that law, you know, from the point of view of the Buddha, is often stated that hatred will never cease as a result of hatred. It will only cease as a result of non-hatred, that that's an eternal law. And by non-hatred, it means being able to take a step back from yourself, to realize that you only have your interpretation. And in any given moment, 
Do you want to speak about something that is not present? Do you want to talk about the president of the United States when the president is not in the room? And why are you doing that at that moment? Are you virtue signaling? Are you just saying, I'm so virtuous because I despise these things? Or is there some real good that will come from the statements that you're making. It seems like along with the Buddha, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is coming up all the time. Education. Yeah, and because he had such a long suffering in a camp where he was very deprived and he learned so much from it. And so here's what Solzhenitsyn says about intolerance. It's a universal law. Intolerance is the first sign of an inadequate education. An ill-educated person behaves with arrogant impatience, whereas truly profound education breeds humility. I mean, I think that's as true as the Buddha's law. If you actually do recognize deeply the nature of being human and the nature of the world we're in, if you have that kind of education, it leads to your humility, to your recognition that you don't know, you don't know the answers within yourself. You need others. And then step by step that you don't know the exact truth of what is going on so that you don't actually need to go out and say humiliating things about people who are not present. You can instead ask questions or you can talk about your own thoughts and feelings with a kind of humility. Like this is what I'm feeling, but I'm not sure that I know by myself what to do about this. So again, this is a kind of a path or a kind of a model that we're gonna talk about leading to eventually this mindful dialogue, but recognizing that one has to work with this interactive self that is motivated by emotion and then all these interpretive feelings, which are preferences and judgments and, and ideals and so on, which very often lead to this envy, shame, humiliation in the public arena. Polly, thank you so much. This has been so educational for me as I've been listening to you. And I realize that when you don't know something exists, you don't perceive its influence. And so when, you know, everything that you're sharing with us is about waking up that capacity within us and very foundational in terms of understanding mindfulness and the possibility that we can all change. Polly, thank you so very much. We're going to continue this. So this is the end of our dialogue today, and we'll be back with you very shortly. Thanks so much for listening. And to continue the conversation, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find past episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and CastBox. Enemies from War to Wisdom is recorded and produced by Chris Coltrane.